my listeners. I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast by The Post and Courier. We draw from the reporting resources and knowledge in our newsroom to help you better understand our state. Today, we're going to be talking with Andy Shane, who leads our Columbia Bureau, and Avery Wilkes, a project reporter based in Columbia, about what happened when South Carolina's flagship university started up classes during the coronavirus pandemic. We have a lot to dig into on that topic, but first I want to introduce a new host who's joining us today. Uh, Matt has been working behind the scenes to edit the past few episodes. Uh, so Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm a digital news producer here at The Post and Courier. Um, I'm originally from Northwest Indiana near Chicago. Uh, before coming to Charleston, I worked as a reporter for NPR member station WFIU. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, but let's get jumping into the topic we're going to talk about today, which is USC. Um, earlier this year, they uh, sent out a promotional campaign about students returning to campus safely. Um, and here's a little clip of what we uh, of what that sounded like. I'm student body president Izzy Rushton. And I'm President Bob Caslam. Let's prevent the spread of COVID-19. Get tested. Keep your distance, no matter the location. Wash your hands often, 20 seconds with soap and water, or hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. So my first question here for you, Andy, is um, what did USC do to prepare for students returning this fall? Did they make changes to the actual campus? Um, was housing changed? How did their messaging um, go out to students and things like that? USC is the only major college, major public college in South Carolina that is doing some in-person classes. So their prep work um, was, you know, probably a lot more intensive than some other schools that have decided to wait to do in-person classes. So they came up with a major plan to try to obviously um, social distance students in classes, knowing that, of course, not as not everybody was going to take classes in person. They did offer a, a virtual option but also to come up with a, um, a matrix they keep on referring to uh, uh, with 11 criteria that would help them gauge where they were in the sense of, of how much danger, how much the uh, infection was spreading on campus uh, and whether they needed to shut down uh, the campus and shut down in-person classes. Um, you know, you have a, a retired three-star general running the university. So this very evidence-based, very number-based um, matrix is not much of a surprise, um, but it, it takes into account everything from how much testing are they doing to whether they have supplies, to cases, to what kind of spread they're seeing in the community, a, a number of things. So, you know, they've, 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 they feel like that they laid the groundwork to know, um, to first of all, how to mitigate and how to try to keep the, everything from spreading with their, 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 their public awareness campaign to you know, what they did in the classrooms, to what they've done in dorms, uh, and limiting the number of people in dorms, uh, and then of course adopting even um, you know again a baseline for for decision making. Uh, so that's that's all a lot of the work that they went into it, and they they spent uh, the entire summer getting ready uh, for fall classes, which just started uh, really less than two weeks ago. So Avery, one of the things that you wrote about is how they're approaching testing, and it's definitely a, a different approach than than we've seen in South Carolina. So uh, can you first just describe 
when they were going into the school year, what they announced about how they're doing testing. And then I know we also had a recent update on what they're doing with that. But let's just start, first of all, with um, how they were approaching testing when they opened. Yeah, the initial announcement came about uh, a few days before students returned to Columbia for uh, in-person instruction in the fall. So kind of right up against the uh, uh, right up against the wire there. Uh, and it also came a few days after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration gave them permission to do this type of new sort of uh, cutting edge testing. So they announced that they would be uh, conducting saliva based tests, uh, as many as 2,400 a day. Um, and that number is purely just to try to reduce strain on the system and, and keep, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the turnaround times low. Uh, and that they could, you know, test students regardless of whether you're symptomatic, um, whether you don't have symptoms at all, whether you just want to uh, be screened for it so that you can have more peace of mind uh, and that it would be available five days a week and that they could turn around the testing times within 24 hours in most cases. Uh, that was made possible because USC researchers had been working on this for months. I talked to one of the lead researchers on the project back in April, and he was telling me about his grand plans to uh, do this, not really just for USC, but for the state of South Carolina. Uh, he saw it as a way to do what he was calling then a, um, you know, basically a census, uh, uh, a spit census, a way to, you know, what if you could just mail these test vials across the state to every household, have people spit into them, and then mail you back the samples and you could test all of them and immediately, you know, within a week, tell hundreds of thousands of South Carolinians whether they have COVID and need to stay indoors and quarantine or not. Um, ultimately, that uh, that idea, that vision turned into a much more smaller scale um, version of that in which USC is using the saliva test as a way to try to limit the spread of the coronavirus on campus. If students know that they are sick, um, you know, theoretically, they would stay home from class, they would quarantine in one of these dorms, uh, you know, and they could quickly avoid, you know, spreading it to their to their peers. Um, and, you know, they wouldn't go to parties, they wouldn't do these things that are completely irresponsible to do if you had it. And, and the real key is the turnaround times, being able to uh, get these saliva based tests back in 24 hours is huge, especially given that at the time that they announced this, um, you know, we were seeing supply shortages and, um, you know, issues with labs delay turnaround times for the nasal swab based tests, you know, 10 days or, or longer. Um, I think somebody at the Post and Courier, might have been you, Emily, uh, tweeted about how uh, you got your results in, you know, like a month, a month later. So for these tests to be able to to, to turn around so quickly is, is really huge when you're trying to pull off something like bringing students back to campus. Confirmed that was me. I did get a test and got my results a month later. I I honestly just cracked up when I got the text message because I had expected at that point I would never hear. Um, but yes, I was I was negative one one month later. Uh, so just to just to clarify, like you said, these are saliva based tests. So people in South Carolina who have gotten a coronavirus test, um, they had the the more invasive nasal swab, which many have found um, uncomfortable. But these are, uh, these are different. These are saliva-based tests. And are those being offered anywhere else in the state? Do we know that? Or is this just um, something that's being done at USC? 
Not on a widespread basis. We looked into that the same week that uh, USC announced it. Um, you know, there there are, I think, only a handful of other universities across the country that were all trying to do the same thing. Uh, and they saw this as a way to safely reopen campus. Yale is one of the more prominent examples. Uh, the NBA uh, partnered uh, to try to develop these, these tests uh, for their, uh, you know, so that they can continue to play basketball games this summer and fall. Um, so it, it's not really, you know, a widespread thing at this point. Uh, but, you know, certainly state lawmakers in South Carolina see how how fast and how effective these can be. Um, you know, in, in USC's own trials, they uh, came out with the same results the saliva-based test did uh, as the nasal swab-based test 100% of the time, which shows that they are as accurate as the nasal test. Um, so, yeah, th that's actually been a kind of a, a point of contention and a point of tension is how can we make these quick, fast, easily accessible tests available to more than just, you know, uh, 30,000 students at the University of South Carolina? So <clears throat> that's a lot on testing and kind of the plan going into it. Um, Andy, can you talk to us a little bit about how that plan has been implemented as students started coming back? Um, you know, did did the students uh, heed the advice of the administration um, at the university? Did did things start spreading? How was that received, and has the cha has the plan changed at all since students started coming back? Well, you know, the, obviously, best laid plans, right? Um, you know, the analogy I use is 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 unfortunately, as I, I talked about, asking a lion not to chase after a gazelle. Um, you know, asking a college student not to go out and party and socialize is pretty tough. Um, you know, that's really a core of the experience is that is that social nature of it, you know, even taking away the drinking part of it, just the idea that you're, you know, you're there with friends, you're there with you meeting new friends. It's hard to sit here and tell, you know, um, people in their late teens, early 20s don't socialize. Um, uh, and so it's it's obviously not a surprise that we that, uh, you know, we had got reports fairly quickly of parties, big parties off of campus. Um, you know, especially with the bars closing at 11, so Five Points, the, the big entertainment district where uh, near campus that a lot of students would go to, well, no, no, now house parties, apartment parties, pool parties, uh, and there was reports of those all over. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, a lot of it was Greek-related, uh, unfortunately. Um, so uh, uh, some of the, uh, at the moment, now we have nine Greek houses that are under quarantine. Um, uh, as a result, uh, there have been 15 students at the moment who have uh, faced some sort of interim suspension for either breaking quarantine or hosting large parties. Um, and uh, the number of cases rose last week, you know, by almost 500% um, in the first, basically really the first full week of, uh, of classes. Um, so it's, it's not been probably maybe as bad as some people were expecting, but certainly not as good as it could have been. Um, um, and certainly, uh, you know, the idea that we're getting a couple hundred cases a day is not something that is not sustainable. Uh, Bob Caslin, the president of the university, has said he's already asked his staff to draw up closing plans just in case the the, the rate of infection continues. Um, we're going to get, uh, you know, the day that we're recording this podcast, we're going to get some new, new numbers. They haven't updated the numbers uh, in about four or five days. Um, they're only going to be updating their um their, their dashboard a couple times a week. And so we'll find out uh, basically maybe how things went last weekend to see if the parties calmed down a little bit uh, and uh, to see if, uh, see if the spread is uh, slowing a little bit on campus. 
Yeah, and we'll be sure to include the latest information um, in this ep this episode's notes um, when this publishes on Thursday. And they've adjusted also their testing plan, right? They've they've updated how they're doing that. How are the, how have they changed that to respond to the cases that they've seen so far? Sure. I mean, already in their first week, they've had to open a second quarantine dorm. Um, so you know, the, again, cases are are are, are beginning. They're not quite overwhelming the university, but, you know, again, as of late last week, a third of their quarantine beds were filled. I'm, I'm obviously going to be a greater percentage when the new numbers come out uh, based on the fact that they had to open the second dorm. So what they've decided to do uh, is they are testing the wastewater um, coming out of dorms. Um, this is testing, testing wastewater has been something uh, colleges are, have done. And they're doing obviously at the colleges, but also in some towns, because apparently you can pick up whether there's been a, there is a spike in infections from wastewater. So if you're um, if dorm X, uh, they pick up a spike from that 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 dorm, they may sit here and, and come with a mobile team of saliva testers and say, OK, everybody in dorm X, we're going to test you because the wastewater shows a sign of infection. And of course, a lot of the infections with younger uh, patients has been asymptomatic. Uh, so far, the university has said that basically it's been mild, mild symptoms and asymptomatic cases that they've been finding. At the moment, no students have been hospitalized. So again, if you're if you're picking it up from the wastewater and you're able to go to that dorm and find out that there's a cluster of people who have, are infected and need to go to be quarantined, um, you're able to capture that fairly quickly and, and uh, be able to. Uh, I, I guess they're obviously hoping to be able to slow the spread that way. And, and, and real quick, and real, I'm sorry, real quick, and the reason, I'm sorry, real, the, the, the difference in, in what they're doing is that before what would happen is, of course, if somebody on your floor was infected with COVID, they would say, go to the student health center and get tested. Now they're bringing your tests to you. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I should, just you mentioned a second quarantine dorm. Can you explain wh what that is? How does a quarantine dorm work at USC? Sure. So when you're when you're when you're infected or you've been around someone who's in, who's 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 infected, um, they are asking. Of course, they don't want you with the general population, so to speak. Obviously, inside your your dorm. So they've set aside a couple of, of residence halls just for those who have been infected or exposed to um, COVID nineteen. So um, the idea again is to separate those folks from the rest of the campus. Again, helping to stem the spread. Um, um, essentially, if you're in quarantine, you have to be in quarantine for 14 days. Um, you, you have to take all your classes online, even if you have online class, even if you have in-person classes. So, uh, and then they bring meals to you and such. Um, you do, I think, have the option in some cases to quarantine someplace else. Um, but again, that they, they are going to monitor you and apparently make sure that you're not uh, breaking that because, again, they are saying that that is an offense, uh, a, 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 a disciplinary offense that can lead to suspension or even expulsion. Yeah, that is a small detail, but I was wondering about the food. So they, they get meals delivered to them. So it's it's meal plan, but um, yeah. delivered to your dorm quarantine style. Exactly. If you think college food is bad enough, imagine college food being delivered to you. But that's the way it is. I, you know, I know that, for instance, you know, some of the sorority, you know, the sororities and fraternities. And again, we have nine houses under quarantine. That's where their meal plans are. Um, and those that's university housing. And they're having to figure out ways to deliver those to the to the members who are part of the quarantine. Um, you know, as well as, of course, you know, obviously, if you're just in, as I said, that dorm X that I was referring to, you know, they're, they're making arrangements with uh, with the, the food providers to get you uh, to get your food uh, and get it to you safely. 
So again, the idea is that, that if you're infected, you're not spreading it to other folks. So you talked a little bit about how um, the university, <clears throat> excuse me, um, suspended 15 students so far. Um, what kind of things are they doing to discourage students from participating in r risky behaviors such as parties or going out um, over socializing? And um, how is that affecting off campus versus on campus since the university's reach is uh, pretty limited there? Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, and that's fair. I mean, obviously, the, the the reach of the university is is to university housing and, and the campus. But again, the the reach does still apply to you being a student and and being responsible. And and the idea is that, of course, if I'm hosting a party at my house, I'm a student, and I'm ho and I've hosted a large party of more than fifty people. That's the numbers. More than fifty people, and the police commerce or uh, somehow I get I get uh, we get the issues. And it's my house. I'm going to be the, the obviously the, the the incentive there or the disincentive is that I'm going to be punished uh, for hosting that party. Um, and uh, and of course, I think if they can identify some people at the party or who helped put it together, those folks will be uh, disciplined as well. Um, so that's that's the main thing. But you also have people in the community, and I think they're they're ever vigilant. You know, Avery has covered in the past some of the problems in the, in these neighborhoods around the university that have had these houses of college students over the years. Um, and, you know, it, this just is just a sort of an extra concern for those folks. It's not just the rowdy party at, uh, you know, until until all hours of the morning, but of, of course, of the COVID scare. But, you know, talk, I mean, you know, Avery, talk a little bit about like uh, some of these neighborhoods, Olympia and Granby and such and how they've been handling all this. Yeah, these are neighborhoods that have long been, um, you know, people, people, many people who, you know, come to Columbia and, and uh, they go to the university as students and then they decide, you know, they really like Columbia and they end up living in these neighborhoods like Olympia, like Granby, Whaley, um, uh, University Hill, which is basically on campus, um, you know, some of the Five Points neighborhood, Martin Luther King neighborhood. Um, all these neighborhoods that sort of surround the the southern half of campus uh and and now they are all sort of sprinkled with a mixture of uh residential homes you know uh, uh homeowners and, and rentals uh what's kind of been a growing tension between the university and these neighborhoods over the past decade or so since the great recession is that um you know in response to that economic downturn the university started rapidly expanding its student body in order to uh bring in more tuition in order to make up for budget shortfalls and in doing so uh you know it it, it didn't have enough room on campus obviously for all those students to live so those students began you know obviously there was the big housing boom there were apartment uh towers and complexes that started sprouting up all over uh, the capital city but uh, a lot of students can't afford those. Uh, I couldn't afford them when I was in college. So they end up in these residential homes all over the city, uh, but especially in these in these neighborhoods. And they're doing what college students do. They're drinking, they're partying, um, you know, they're staying up all hours of the night, they're having fun. And, you know, sometimes that's okay. And other times it's quite annoying uh, for, the, for the people that actually live there all year round. Uh, so there's been a lot of conversation over the past decade or so between um, these neighborhood leaders and the university where neighborhood leaders are saying, listen, you're, what you're doing is having a direct impact on us, on our quality of life, on our property values. Um, and, you know, you're basically saying, we'll, we'll enforce drinking 
uh, and, and these types of uh, rules on campus, and it's driving that behavior off campus. Uh, there have been different task forces and uh, various community meetings over the years. Um, uh, neighborhood leaders famously had a lot of input on uh, uh, USC's South Campus Village project, which is going to be one of the largest on-campus dorm projects, uh, you know, in decades for the university. Um, and they, you know, they were you know, the neighborhood folks were basically ready to block that project. And, and so they ended up getting a lot of input on how traffic flow would be diverted away from neighborhoods and um, how campus behavior with students going from five points back to campus, um, you know, and walking through these neighborhoods would be policed. So this really is another uh, point of tension. And it, it's sort of another flashpoint of that, because now these, you know, um, there's obviously no parties on campus and uh, there are still a significant number happening off campus. And, uh, you know, and it's another concern for these neighborhood leaders because they're seeing these large gatherings of 50 or more people. Uh, and, you know, before that was annoying and, 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 and now it's unsafe. And, and I know you, you mentioned Andy, that these cases so far have been either mild symptoms or asymptomatic, but I'm sure some of the concern is that, um, that students could come in contact with people who might be more vulnerable and just kind of that exposure for the Columbia area in general. Um, are, are we seeing the numbers from the university reflected in in what we're seeing for, for Richland County overall? Is 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 the county uh, climbing up higher in terms of cases compared to other parts of the state? Uh, very much so. Uh, um, there was a delay in getting the saliva testing to DHEC because of a because of a technical paperwork glitch, but all of a sudden the floodgates have opened. Um, in in over the weekend, we noticed that Richland County had a record number of cases on what would be for reported for Saturday's actual day and for Sunday over the weekend. Essentially, Richland County had four times as many cases as the next county, uh, both uh, on Saturday and Sunday, um, which is pretty much all almost all attributable to USC. Um, you know, that's sort of these, you know, the, you know, at the, at, again, as of recording this podcast, the, the, the university had 557 total active cases, uh, this, uh, as of four days ago. So those numbers are finally getting reflected in, in the, in the tallies and, and, um, and you're seeing the impact, uh, uh, you know, on the county, which already, you know, Richland County was one of the hardest, uh, hit places, uh, overall, uh, during, during this outbreak. So, it's it's interesting to sort of see how how the school plays a role in that and again you know you're talking about a campus with more than 30,000 students on it so you know they're monitoring uh and to see again to see how that 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 growth rate goes and it'll be interesting to see again if it continues at what point do they maybe pull a plug on in-person classes but uh, at the moment uh president caslin has said he will do everything in his power to keep them going i'm wondering has the city of columbia weighed in at all have they um said anything for example about the the, the off-campus parties and any type of enforcement that that they would be involved in yeah the city is uh in the process of, of passing that um that ordinance that would crack down on um house parties and basically the only thing that slowed that down is that you know you have to have three readings of every uh of every city ordinance or county ordinance so it that's in the process of passing it looks like it will pass um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that enforcement looks like. One of the complaints that I hear from neighborhood leaders is that, you know, USC has its own police force, but they won't 
really come off campus to shut down parties or um, to really do much of anything uh, unless, you know, do code enforcement type work unless there's something seriously criminal going on. Um, so, you know, Columbia has been sort of on the, the front end of policing, uh, you know, COVID-19 restrictions. You know, they, they passed a mask ordinance. They were looking at doing contact tracing. Uh, you know, Mayor Steve Benjamin has, has been um, sort of really, really aggressive and, and on the front edge of, of trying to uh, shut down the, the spread of the virus within the city. Um, still, it's not going to solve every problem because we'll see what the level of enforcement is. But you've also got some neighborhoods that are in these county donut holes. Um, you know, the Olympia neighborhood uh, that is southwest of campus is in Richland County. So uh, and that's where a lot of, you know, these off campus uh, homes are, uh, uh, you know, from what uh, from what neighborhood leaders tell me, a lot of them are sort of these off campus fraternity houses. They've got the, the flags with the Greek letters on them uh, that sort of denote what they are. And, um, you know, the, the city's ordinance will not have any effect in that neighborhood. So uh, I, I don't think that this is going to be a silver bullet by any means. And moving on from that, Andy, I know you mentioned that um, the president of the university has had people start putting together a a plan in case they need to shut down. Are there any details about what that plan consists of um, or when what would trigger its implementation? You know, again, they, they're using this matrix and it's, you know, it's just like anything else it has a low, medium, high. They're still on low, even with this, this spike in cases. You know, the university shut down uh, in, in March, uh, soon after spring break. In fact, the USC was the first school to announce that it was shutting it down its campus back in March, uh, which made its decision to hold in-person classes and be one of the few um, interesting when it came to the fall. Um so I'm assuming it's obviously going to going to mimic the plan that they did in, in in March, where they essentially shut down all university housing, shut down the campus, sent all classes uh, online. Um, the only thing is, is that as as President Caslin noted, is that with with so many students still, you know, in town, you know, 80 percent of the student population lives off campus, that those people would those students would remain in town. And, you know, there's going to be no, nothing on the university, including the Student Health Center. And so his concern, of course, in, in making this decision is not uh, burdening uh, the city's um, health system with all the USC students who normally could be taken care of through the university channels if the campus were open. So he's got to weigh those two things, um, you know, as, as he makes tries, tries to make this decision. I think we're a, a little, maybe a little bit away from closing the campus. But again, I think it's just going to depend on what we maybe see in the next week or two in, in how the cases continue to, uh, you know, the trend of the cases. They continue to spike, probably heading towards closing. We see some leveling off, students paying attention to uh, the warnings, maybe getting uh, the parties out of their system. Um, um, maybe a few friends getting sick and saying, I don't want to get sick. Um, you know, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, one thing President Caslin did say is that during the summer, when students were here, there was a spike at first during the summer and then seemed to, then seemed to calm down. And he's hoping uh, the same thing happens. And, and USC is really the experiment for the state of South Carolina. Some other schools went before USC nationally and, you know, it, it really imploded. Uh, you know, when you look at what happened at UNC Chapel Hill, they brought students back and 
you know, within about a week, they had hundreds of cases and, you know, hundreds more students in quarantine. And they ended up sending students back home and, and uh, you know, going to online only instruction. And colleges have been heavily criticized for that, especially some of these, uh, you know, larger schools that have football programs. And, you know, it's uh, they've been criticized for uh, ostensibly, you know, bringing students back with some expectation of normalcy, uh, uh, you know, and, and making sure that they cash in on the full tuition, um, you know, housing and meal plans. And then, uh, you know, when things go poorly, as a lot of public health experts might have predicted, uh, then blaming it all on the students and, you know, sending them home and having them do online only instruction, uh, which I think most people would agree is, is not quite the same as face-to-face. Uh, so, you know, it would be huge if USC could avoid that. Uh, I think the saliva-based testing is something that they have at their disposal that the vast, vast majority of schools didn't, but it'll be, you know, a lot of it still is on is on the students at this point, uh, as well as on the university. So it, it, we are still kind of in the midst of this great experiment to see if uh, if USC and other colleges can pull this off. Right, and you, you bring up a, a good point that... Um that this is important for colleges in South Carolina in in general. We have a number of places that haven't uh, gone back to in-person classes. We have the College of Charleston here in Charleston that hasn't started in-person instruction yet. Um, And we are following along with all of that. Uh, Reporters, of course, in um, in Columbia and in Charleston, also in Greenville and in Myrtle Beach. So everything higher ed, we are keeping track of. Um, so definitely just keep looking at our website and following what's going on with all of these schools. Um, before we let both of you go, what are the best ways for listeners to get in touch with you if they have comments or questions? Um, you can always email me at ashane, A-S-H-A-I-N, at postandcourier.com. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at at Andy Shane. And that, again, is S-H-A-I-N on the last name. Um, and my, my DMs are open, so please feel free to send me a note that way if you'd like to. Yeah, same for me. My email is awilks at postandcourier.com, A-W-I-L-K-S, no E in Wilkes. Uh, and then my Twitter is at Avery G. Wilkes. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much to both of you. And if listeners have any comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, they can find us at Understand SC. Thanks so much for listening, and we will be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com. If you're a fan of the show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.